Do you ever stop and think about time? I'm sure that you do from time to time. We all do. Sometimes we think we have too much time, although that's kind of rare. Maybe if you're a student sitting in detention or you're forced to wait at the DMV, you you think you have too much time. But most of the time, it's the exact opposite. There's just not enough time. Time moves too fast, like a train that cannot be stopped. Kids grow up too fast. Moments go by too fast. Milestones come and go way too fast. Or maybe this happens to you. You, You're planning a, a nice vacation, and the months leading up to the vacation, that feels like it takes forever. Time just crawls along. It just never comes. But then when that vacation does come, it goes by in a heartbeat. It's just your seven days in Hawaii or wherever you go. They come and go just like that. Has that ever happened to you? And beyond all this, do you ever think about time itself? I'm not talking about the passing of time in your life, but more so the question, what actually is time itself? I mean, how would you define time? You ever thought about that? Time, to scientists and philosophers alike, has proven to be a very difficult thing to define. Some go the easy route. Time is what clocks measure, which is clever, true. Others say time is what keeps everything from happening at once, also true. And finally, some say that time is the measurement of change in the universe, which is how we measure change. Just think about this. Try and imagine this. Imagine a universe where nothing changes, nothing even moves. Everything is perfectly still, like it's frozen, from atoms to planets. Nothing moves. So in this universe, is there time? Is time passing? And if you say yes, well, how do you know? How can you measure it? How do you know you're not just frozen in time? And if you say no, well, then what you're saying is that time doesn't actually exist on its own. Time is just something we use to measure and describe change in the universe. It's a little bit confusing. When you start to think about time, well, confusion comes with the territory pretty soon. And if you want to get really confused, start thinking about the relativity of time. We measure time in in minutes, seconds, hours, years, but that doesn't mean time flows at a constant rate. Think about water flowing in a river. Depending on the size of the channel, water moves faster or slower. And the flow of water is relative to the space of the river. And Einstein, he found primarily that time is the same way. The flow of time is relative to space. And so this being the case, according to Einstein's theory of relativity, the faster you move through space, the slower time flows. It's like a river. The the wider the space of the river, the slower that water flows. And so the faster you go, the slower time goes. It's not something you would ever notice. But unless you are, the faster you get to the speed of light, and it gets really interesting, time slows down a lot. There's something called the twin paradox to help explain this phenomenon. Let's say you've got a spaceship traveling from Earth to another planet, it's four light years away, and you're going 80% the speed of light. And if that were the case, according to mission control on planet Earth, this trip would take 10 years, round trip. 
But according to the clocks on the spaceship and the aging of people on the ship, the round trip only takes six years. So if you had twins and you put one of them on the ship and one of them stays behind on Earth, newborn twins, by the time the ship comes back, the one who stayed on Earth is 10 years old. But the one who stayed on the ship is only six years old. And you ask, well, how can that be? It's because time slows down the faster you go, the closer you get to the speed of light. Now think about this. If the spaceship instead was traveling at 99.999% the speed of light and it made a one-year round trip, just one year according to the ship, 223 years would have elapsed on Earth. Can you imagine that? You get on the spaceship. You're 20 years old. It's the year 2000. You go for just a year. You come back. You're 21 years old. But the year on Earth is 2223. Everybody you know has, has died. The world has totally changed. And you've effectively traveled into the future. And in this regard, actually, time travel is possible. To the future, at least. In reality, though, we all are time travelers. We're all traveling into the future. We just go pretty slow at the same rate. Us humans haven't got anywhere close to the speed of light, and so we all march on into the future at the same rate. But just thinking about these things, thinking about time, it's all interesting stuff. The more you think about it, the more it makes your head spin. If you really want to make your head spin, though, start thinking about God and time. Bring God into the equation when it comes to what we call time. I mean, just think, how does God relate to time? Does God experience time? Is God bound by time? For God, it's not a matter of whether or not he can travel at the speed of light. God doesn't travel. He's just an entirely different being. So how does God relate to time? And we know that God has a different relationship to space, right? We call it omnipresent. God is everywhere present at once. So would you also think that God has a different relationship to, to time? think so. Indeed, many believe that to God, like his omnipresence, he experiences time in the same way. Every moment is right now to God. Past, present, future. It's all just right now to God. And we, we can't even conceive what that would be like. We, just, we can't even really think about that. Or maybe does God just exist outside of time altogether? Before God created the universe, space didn't exist. Therefore, did time not exist as well? And when God did create time and space, did he limit himself to the boundaries of time for our sakes to accommodate himself for us? And we don't really know. We don't really know. There's one thing we do know, as we just even start to think about this, that God is different. God is different. He is greater than us. He is mightier than us. He's more magnificent than us. And you can add to that list God's relationship to time as just one more thing that separates him from us. One more thing that shows he's the creator, we're the creature. His special relationship to time. We are bound by time and he is not. It's like Psalm 90 says, verses 2 and 4. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, 
even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. This morning in Second Peter, we come to learn a very similar truth about God and his relationship to time. You can take your Bibles, you can open them now to Second Peter chapter 3 as we continue our march along in this final chapter of Second Peter. And what we learn is that contrary to God being bound by time, he holds time in his hands. Time is just another tool that God uses to govern the world. But Peter doesn't stop there. Not only do we learn that God uses time, we come to learn what God uses time for. Although in a sense, time is completely insignificant to God. In another sense, it is extremely significant, especially from our perspectives, for time allows for our salvation. For us, time is a limited commodity. We have a relatively short time on earth with which to live, and then we have an eternal time in the next life where we'll live forever. However, what our time is like in eternity is, in a sense, largely determined by how we use our short amount of time right now. Isn't that pretty amazing to think about? And so to us, time is very significant. The days are very significant to us, and we need to use them wisely. Last week from Second Peter chapter 3, we learned three different lessons about time from the past, present, future. We learned what God is doing with our days and how he works all of history toward his predetermined end. Specifically, just as God started this world, he will end the world. There will be an end to the world, and because of sin, that end will include a judgment. God will hold all accountable for how they lived and how they used their time. And now as we continue to progress through chapter 3, we're continuing this theme of time, only a slightly different emphasis now on days, specifically the idea of days. Time is measured in different ways. We saw that. But that way of measuring time, the day, to us humans is so fundamental, just the day. Everybody knows the day. And in a very interesting yet sobering passage, we come to learn how God views and uses our days and how we should as well. So continuing this theme of time from last week, but now with that the focus on, on days, this week from Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, or rather 8 through 13, we want to discover four truths about the days of our lives so that you may spend your days well. Four truths about the days of our lives so that you may spend your days well. The first truth is this from verse 8. The days are insignificant to God. The days are insignificant to God. Have you ever wondered, 
Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why hasn't the world ended already, if it's going to? As we learned last week, the false teachers in the early church, they had an answer. Their answer was, well, Christ's not coming back, and the world is not going to end. They denied the future judgment using this as a justification to indulge in their fleshly desires without worry. But they arrived at the wrong conclusion. Why? Because they failed to take into account God's word. As Peter said back in verse 5 of chapter 3, something really important escaped their notice, namely the word of God. Really, though, for them, it was a deliberate denial of God's word. They failed to take into account that God, by his word, created the world. By his word, flooded the world. And by his word, presently has reserved the world for our future destruction by fire and the judgment of ungodly men. So you can be sure that the world will end, that Jesus will return, and that all will be judged because of God's more sure word. The false teachers made a critical mistake in denying the word of God, but it really wasn't a mistake. It was a deliberate denial on their part to justify their sinful lives. It's kind of hard to live that sin-indulged, carefree life when you're worrying about judgment all the time. That was all from last week. But this week, in a sense, these questions still remain, though. I mean, for us, we we don't make that same mistake. We're not denying God's word. But even for us, we still find ourselves at time asking the question, well, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why hasn't the world ended? And the mockers, they keep mocking, so, so where's God? Christians from the very beginning have lived with this constant hope that Jesus would return soon. But as the years flew by, and even in the early church, as the apostles, they started to die off, Christians started to ask themselves, well, where's the Lord? What is the explanation for the delay? And now Peter turns his attention toward the mockers, or rather away from the mockers, toward the faithful to give some answers. To give some answers. The false teachers got the end wrong because God's word escaped their notice. For us, we don't make that mistake. We're not denying God's word. But we too can get the end wrong if another fact escapes our notice, namely the relationship of God to time. God's relationship to time. If you wonder, where's God? Where's Jesus? When will he return? If you find yourself asking, you know, what's taking so long? Then start by reading verse 8. Look now, Second Peter 3, verse 8. Continuing from last time, he says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. If you fail to take into consideration God's relationship to time, 
then you're going to get it wrong. You're going to wonder, why is it taking so long? But God is not late. Jesus is not tardy. For you can't confine God to your timetable. The early church, they thought it was extreme that Jesus hadn't returned by 50 years after his death. And here we are, though, 2,000 years later. I don't think they ever would have seriously imagined that it would be a full at least 2,000 years before the end came. But here we are. And who knows? It is entirely possible that it could be another 2,000 years before Christ comes back. Would you realize that? It's entirely possible. But guess what? It doesn't change anything because the time in between is irrelevant. To God, 50 years, 2,000 years, 20,000 years is nothing. Time is insignificant to God. The days are insignificant to God. I have to say, though, this verse gets thoroughly abused. People try and make this verse say all sorts of things. Just remember, though, that whatever you make this verse say, it says the exact opposite as well. Because not only does Peter say that a day is like a thousand years, but he says the exact opposite, that a thousand years is like a day. So it goes both ways. For example, some people use this verse to say, look, see, the days of Genesis 1, they're not literal 24-hour days, but they're just huge periods of time, thousands of years. Because look, a day is like a thousand years to God. But you could equally say back that God, because A thousand years is like a day to God. God could do in one literal day, which would otherwise take thousands of years. Both sides can use the same verse to their end. It goes both ways. All this to say that you can't just use this verse as some proof text. Rather, the point that Peter makes, it's it's really simple. Time is different to God. And God is indifferent to time. God has a different relationship to time than we do. And we don't have all the answers here, but we know that God is not bound by time, and he's certainly not bound by our timetable. But when you consider things from God's timeless perspective, you can say that Christ's return is neither late nor early. It's right on time. It's truly all about having the right perspective. You need to have the right perspective. It's like the story of the blind men and the elephant. Heard this one before? It's actually an ancient Indian parable, and it teaches all about perspective. Six blind men were told to determine what an elephant looked like simply by touching it. And so one blind man feels a leg, and he says an elephant is like a pillar. The second feels the tail and says an elephant is like a rope. The third feels the trunk and says the elephant is like a tree branch. The fourth feels an ear and says the elephant is like a hand fan. The fifth feels the belly, says an elephant is like a wall. And the sixth feels the tusk and says an elephant is like a pipe. Each blind man thinks he knows exactly what the elephant looks like, but they're wrong. Each of them are wrong. 
Why? Because they lack the proper perspective. They can only see a small portion of the big picture, and so they get the conclusion wrong. And so it is with us and God at times. Our human perspective is extremely limited. I mean, we are bound by space and time. But when you start to think of God in that same way, as if he is bound by space and time, then you're going to get him wrong. You're going to get the picture wrong. You're going to get the end wrong. You have to open your eyes. God is not a man. And you need to see the big picture. But from our perspective, it's been so long since Christ has come. But from God's perspective, it's been no time at all. From our perspective, Jesus, it seems so late in coming back that some people start to doubt if he'll ever come. But for God's, from God's perspective, he's right on schedule. Peter doesn't answer our every question about God and time and the end. But he does give us a comforting reminder that God is God. He knows what he is doing. And he controls time. So remember, the days are insignificant to God. And can I say this, that overall, this issue of perspective really gives us the answer to to most of our why questions. Now, people have questions. It's not wrong to ask questions. Some people, though, since questions don't have easy answers, they start to doubt. For example, you know, why, why is there so much evil in the world if God is so good? And they can't find a satisfactory answer in their tiny little brains. And so they end up concluding, well, I guess God must not exist. But this is the height of foolish ignorance. God is not a man. Do not think of God like a man. He's not like us. And does this fact, like Peter says, escape your notice? The being of who God is, it should go beyond your, your tiny little brain's capacity to understand. I mean, there should be things about God that you can't grasp. Because God is infinite, and the finite can never fully grasp the infinite. Now, so many of man's supposed problems are resolved when you remember this right perspective. You are a blind ant, and God is God. So who are you to call him to give an accounting of himself? Who are you to deny his existence because you can't figure everything out? Just read the book of Job and see how God rebukes those who dare to question him over their little questions. Here, Peter opens up and exposes us to the right perspective on God in time. And look, he doesn't answer our every question. But it does help answer this question. Why hasn't Christ returned? Why has his return been delayed? And the answer is, It hasn't. God knows no delays. He holds time in his hands and he uses it entirely for his purposes. For the days are insignificant to God. But we're not done. Remember, it's all about perspective and there's another perspective we want to consider here. 
From one perspective, we find that the days are insignificant to God. But from another perspective, we find the opposite, that the days are significant to God. And that is the second lesson, the second truth we want to learn about the days of our lives here. Number two, the days are significant to God. Look now at verse 9. He says, the Lord, verse 9, is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. As we just saw, time itself is completely insignificant to God. For God, time travel is a joke. God doesn't have to worry about traveling at the speed of light to go through time or or to go through a wormhole or something like that. Time is nothing to God. But at the same time, God uses time for his plan, for his purposes. And in this regard, God has made time to be very significant. The days, in this sense, are significant to God because he has chosen to use them redemptively. God has chosen to use our days to offer us salvation. It's a limited time offer. People love their sales. When your favorite store has a special sale and and that the pair of shoes you always wanted or that dress or that gadget that you always wanted goes on sale and you learn it's a limited time offer, it really springs people into action. I mean, even though you're probably only saving a couple of dollars, The idea that your favorite item is on sale for a limited time only just gets people going. They want to get in on the deal before it's too late. And look, God has offered us a special sale. Although really it's more of a giveaway. Salvation. It's offered to all. It's free. But you only have a limited time to get in on the offer before it's gone. It's a limited time offer, but it's a free offer. And this free offer of salvation is found all throughout Scripture. In Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There you go. John 6.47, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. You want eternal life? It's there. Just believe. It's there. It's offered. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So there it is. But this free offer of salvation won't last forever. So repent and believe before it's too late. From our perspective, it's all we need to worry about. God is using these days redemptively to offer salvation Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, because there may not be a tomorrow. So turn to Christ now before the offer is gone. And this fact is why God delays the end. This actually is the answer now to why there is this delay, if you want to call it that, to the end. Remember, now Peter is turning his attention toward believers 
And you know, he knows that even Christians at, time, at times wonder, you know, why has Christ's return taken so long? Why the delay? You know, God, why are you so slow about your promise of Christ's return and salvation and judgment? What's taking so long? Let's just end this world of evil and usher in heaven. Let's just get it over with. Why the delay? And he answers in verse 9, look, God delays the end so that heaven may be populated. He is holding off judgment so that some may be saved. There will come a day when God will judge the world, when everyone left alive and even those who are dead will stand before the throne. And when that time comes, the offer of salvation is gone. The offer is over. It's shut. It is the time only now for judgment. And every unbeliever will be cut off and sentenced to hell. So when the end comes, when that day comes, every unbelieving person is effectively doomed. It's over. The offer is gone. And that's a problem, in a sense. How so? Well, let me explain by way of personal illustration. I became a Christian in, in the year 2001 at the age of 18. And I'll tell you what. I'm sure glad that Jesus didn't come back in the year 2000. I'm sure glad that the end of the world didn't happen with the whole Y2K thing in the year 2000. Because guess where I would be right now? I would be in hell. I'm sure glad that God delayed the judgment for at least a few more years, giving me the time to repent and believe. The same applies to you. And this this fact is the explicit explanation for the supposed delay to the end. Now, why is God so slow about his promise of Christ's return in the end? And the answer, he's not being slow. He's being patient, and there is a difference. I mean, there is a lot of evil going on in the world. There is. There's a lot of sin going on. But God is holding back his wrath. He's holding it back for now. And it's not due to indifference or inability. Rather, it's due to patience. God is holding back his wrath and patiently enduring man's sin so that sinners might have time to repent, believe, and be saved. The answer to the supposed delay in God's plan is God's mercy. You do realize, don't you, that technically, if God were being only just, if you were just only being just, that every single person would be instantly killed for the wages of sin is death. They would be instantly judged and instantly sent to hell. Right now, everybody. Because that's what we all deserve. In fact, really, there shouldn't even have been a human race to begin with. Because if God were being only just, then Adam and Eve would have been executed the second they sinned and judged, and there would be no human race. That's it. It's over. But God, all throughout history, has patiently endured our sins and has held back his wrath 
for a time. Giving us, instead, many days on earth that we don't deserve. And why would God do that? That we might have an opportunity to repent and believe. If God were to bring down the hammer of his judgment right now, every unbeliever would be condemned. But God delays, so to speak, so that more and more are given the time to repent, believe, and come to salvation. But does this mean that God is going to delay forever or until everyone alive is saved? The answer is no. Rather, God will keep storing up his wrath and holding back the end until the last believer written in his book comes to salvation. God knows those who are his. And when the last person comes to believe, then there will truly be nothing left to hold back the end. This is precisely what Peter says in verse 9. And we find here in verse 9, actually, one of the strongest verses on the sovereignty of God and salvation. God holds back the end because he is patient toward you. And do you see where it says you in verse 9? Who's he talking about? Who's the you? It is Peter's audience, the church, believers. As he says in verse 8, beloved. God delays for the sake of the elect. Now maybe you've heard some people use this verse though to argue for universal salvation or at least God's desire for universal salvation. They they say, look, see, God, he doesn't want anyone to, to perish. He wants everyone to be saved. But you have to ask yourself, wait, who is this referring to? You see where it says any in verse 9? God is not wishing for any to perish. Well, that any must be defined. I mean, what's it talking about? It could literally be any number of things. Is God not wishing for any American to perish? Or maybe Russian? Or does he really mean any human being? What about birds? Is God not wishing for any bird to perish? Or any building? It literally could mean anything unless the word any is defined. And the context defines what he's talking about. Verse 9 defines the subject clearly. So when he says any in verse 9, what's Peter talking about? What is his subject? Or technically, what is the nearest antecedent? That's what it's called. What comes before? And the answer is, it's the you. Believers. The church. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, believers, not wishing for any of you, believers, to perish, but for all of you to come to repentance. And God is holding back for the sake of those who are written in his book. This is the reason for God's supposed delay. I mean, is not everything written in God's book who doesn't know time? It's not like he's waiting to see what will happen. Are not all of our days numbered by God? Of course. It's like David said in Psalm 139, verse 6, or verse 16. God's, or David says, And in your book 
were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And David knew before he was born, God had them all written down, everything about his life beginning to end. Look, we can be clueless, but God knows what's going on here. He has a plan, and history marches along according to his plan. And part of God's plan includes the salvation of some from this judgment. And the end will come when his plan has run its course. That's when. Jesus came at just the right time the first time. He's going to come back at just the right time the second time. You don't need to worry about that. In fact, Peter doesn't waste time setting a date or trying to predict when this is going to happen. It doesn't matter. What's really important is that you have the right perspective on God and time. That you do not doubt his promises, like the mockers did. And that you take seriously what he says. We know that not everyone will be saved. But some will. And so like Jesus, all we need to do is preach the good news of salvation to everyone. That's all we do. God will do his part. Don't worry about that. Instead, you thank God for showing you mercy. Praise God for giving you time to repent. And then hold out the same offer of salvation to everyone you encounter. Today is the day of salvation. Let other people know. Because this deal won't last forever. And for now, the days are significant to God because he's using them to offer salvation. But these days won't last forever. There will be one day when these days come to an end. And this leads now to the third truth about the days of our lives. Number three, now, one day is very significant to God. One day is very significant to God. Verse 10. He says next, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. God has ordered human history. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. The prophet says, or God speaking through the prophet, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose is, will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's God. He just uses time for his plan. And along these lines, the end has been declared. Human history will culminate in what's called the day of the Lord. And here in 2 Peter, we come to learn a few things about this special day of the Lord. First, this day will come. It's going to come. Peter responds to the mockers now with some direct truth. 
their contention was that no, the, the day won't come. There's not going to be a day of judgment. And Peter responds, look, there may be a, a supposed delay, but the day will come. The day of the Lord will come. The concept of the day of the Lord is found all over the Old Testament. The day of the Lord, it's really a technical term in Scripture used to refer to the culmination of history. It's a future time of, of darkness and destruction and, and damnation. This judgment has many facets, takes place over many time periods, but they're all described as being part of the day of the Lord. It's this time when God will rescue his people once for all and judge the unrighteous once for all. Now, Peter's not worried about giving us a a theological lesson on the day of the Lord. He's just stating the fact, and that's his point. The day will come. Sure, it's delayed for the sake of the elect, but it will come. Second, he tells us how it will come. It will come like a thief. In other words, you won't see it coming. The day of the Lord will come at an unexpected time. It's just like Jesus said in Matthew 24. He said, look, you're not going to know the day or the hour, so don't worry about it. Don't be setting dates. Instead, be always prepared because it will come when you don't expect it. He said, just like in the days of Noah, it will come. People were living their lives, going about their normal business, right up until the moment the waters came. And then suddenly, they were all swept away in judgment, just like that. And so it will be in the future. Again, this is all the more reason to get right with God now, because you don't know when that day will be. But thirdly now, Peter spends most of his time telling us exactly what will happen to the creation when that day comes. He's already talked about the judgment that comes on that day, back in verse 7, the judgment of the ungodly. But now his attention shifts to creation itself. The mockers contended that this judgment won't come. The earth doesn't change. just keeps on spinning and it just always will. And that's true for now. The earth keeps on spinning. But even that will come to an end. Verse 10, he says, For the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. This is meant to be a terrifying picture. Those in the ancient world, they didn't really understand the atom like we do today, the, the building block of life. But they did understand that all matter could be broken down into some element, this most basic level. And at that most basic level, everything will be destroyed. Existence itself will be torn apart with, he says, a roar. And this word for roar, it's meant to evoke all sorts of terrifying sounds. And that's how this word was used. I mean, just imagine the the swish of an arrow as it heads right for you. Or the rumble of a waterfall as you plummet toward it. Or the hiss of a snake as it prepares to strike you. All sorts of uh, words of terror this word was used for. But none so much as fire. And when God destroys by fire, all other sounds will be drowned out by the roar of the end. Now at that point, the earth and its works will be burnt up. 
So, you know, you better see the Grand Canyon now. Because it's not going to be around forever. And go see all, all the great places of the world because they're not going to be around. Everything will burn. The pyramids, the Great Wall, the Empire State Building, Mount Everest, nothing will last. Everything will be destroyed. He reiterates in verse 12 and continues. He says, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed with burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. The picture again is that nothing survives. Nothing except people. People are the only thing that survives. Everyone in the world will survive the end at least spiritually, although their flesh will decay, spiritually we live on, and every person survives the destruction because they've got an appointment. They have an appointment before the great white throne. A special day. It's a final day of judgment. And truly, this is a very significant day to God. Because on that day, finally, all wrongs will be made right, Justice will be served, and the unrighteousness of the world will end. It's like we read last week, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Speaking of this time, John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And that's what Peter is talking about, the end of the universe. Only those who trust in Jesus for their salvation will escape this final judgment. For the rest, verse 15 says in Revelation 20, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, it was thrown into the lake of fire. When you realize how the world ends, when you realize what comes at the end, when you realize it's only a matter of time, then you learn that this final day is quite significant to God, but it's also quite significant to me as well. The end of days are significant to us. And this brings us now to the fourth and final truth about the days of our lives here from this passage. Number three, one day is very significant to God. Number four, one day is very significant to us as well. One day is very significant to us. Look at verse 11. He says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the God of, of the day of God. Verse thirteen. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Last week, if you remember, Peter's focus was on the mockers and the message for them and for all unbelievers is the same repent and believe before it's too late. This offer still stands, but it won't stand forever. Now, though, his focus is on the faithful, and his message for the church is clear. In light of these truths about time 
in light of the destruction of the world, he says, what sort of a people ought you to be? And it's not so much as of a question as an admonition. And the answer is rather obvious. He says in verse 11, a holy people, a godly people. And far from living for this world or the things of this world, you are to be living for the next world and even longing for, verse 12, the coming of the day of God. You don't belong here. So drop your obsession with this place. It's not wrong to enjoy this life. It's not. But some Christians can get so caught up with it that they find themselves starting to live for the things of this world, for stuff. But this is wrong. That'd be like a marathon runner stopping to to smell the roses or a marathon runner stopping to, to go for a swim in the ocean. It's like, hello, you're on a race, so don't get so distracted. And the same applies to you. Now that you know what the end of the race looks like, all the more so run. Run and live as a citizen of the new heavens and the new earth. This should be your hope and your desire. It's a purifying hope. Did Peter not say in his first letter, we're aliens, we're strangers on this earth. We don't belong here. We now belong with the Lord. And so truly now we are looking ourselves for a new earth and a new heavens in which righteousness dwells. Realize we don't belong there. We don't belong in heaven where only righteousness dwells because we are not righteous. But God, through Christ, has made us righteous and enabled us to be there. And so now it is our desire because of what has been done for us in Christ to live righteously, to live in a manner worthy of our calling, and to live according to our hope. So the reality of the end of the world, it's not a motivation for inactivity. The conclusion is not to go sit in a monastery and just wait for the end. Because the days that we have, they're far too significant for such inactivity. Although, yes, we are saved, and no, we will not meet judgment, God still wants us to be active. And so you know what the conclusion is? It is to use all the days we have, each one of them being very precious, not for ourselves and not for sin, but for the Lord and his glory. We're going to come back next week. We'll really flesh this out because that's what Peter does in the final passage of the letter. But even now, start asking yourself, what do you live for? You've been given a set number of days. So how are you spending them? Are you wasting your time? Are you consumed with stuff? Realize it's all going to burn. Your house, your money, your possessions, nothing will go with you. And so yes, you can enjoy the blessings life brings. That's fine. But don't live for them. Live instead for the Lord. The false teachers of Peter's day denied the reality of the end to justify their immoral life. 
And really the exact opposite should be the case. You need to acknowledge the reality of the end. And in turn, that becomes one of your greatest motivators to godly living. Think about judgment. It will do you well. Think about God's just wrath being poured out on sin. Think about how much you deserve that because you're guilty. But then think about how you don't get that because of what Jesus did on the cross, dying on the cross, rising from the dead to satisfy God's wrath that should have been poured out on you. God did this by his grace to bring you into the new world in which righteousness dwells. So as you think about these things, you think about the end. Let the fire of the future ignite a fire in you right now to serve the Lord, to be holy, to live righteously, and spend whatever days you have for God and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we know that the end will come. You're the God who created, and you're the God who will end this creation only before you create a new a new heavens and a new earth. But this world will end. And may we not be those who live for the things of the world. Lord, give us eyes, give us a vision, give us a perspective to see things eternally and to see heaven even from earth. That, that's what we are here aiming for as our goal, as our final destination, really just to be with you in heaven. Help us to live now as citizens of that place. It's a place where righteousness dwells, and I pray all of us here are convicted to live righteously toward that end. May we not be consumed with the world and the things of this world, but rather consumed with you, your will, your word, and your glory. I pray for those who don't know you, There's an offer. It's a good offer. It stands for now. If they would just repent of their sins and turn to Christ in faith, if they would humble themselves over their broken lives and and cry out to you in faith, that they would be saved. It's a good offer, Lord. We thank you for it, but it's a limited time offer. I pray those, any here who might not know, would, would heed your call before it is too late because there will come a day when it is too late. We thank you for, for calling us nonetheless, for giving us the time to repent. All, all we can do is marvel at your mercy and your patience toward us. And now live rightly before you. So we aim to do that. Bless us as we go from here now. It is in your name we pray. Amen.